0: And good evening, one and all, and welcome to the X-Zone. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And for the next four hours, I am your host. I am your guide as together we cross the time-space continuum to this place that I call the X-Zone. It's a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. And the X-Zone comes to you Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern. Right here on the Exome Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, and iHeart Radio. If you'd like to visit us online on any of the social media sites, Exzone Radio TV, my email address is exzone at exoneradiotv.com. And if you'd like to uh, find out about the programming we have available for you 24 7, 365 on the Exome Broadcast Network, it's all with our compliments at www.xzbn.net. My guest this hour is Thornton D.T.D. D. Barnes, author and entrepreneur. He grew up on a ranch at Dalhart, Texas. He graduated from Mountain High School, Mountain View High School in Oklahoma and embarked on a 10-year military career. He served as an Army intelligence specialist in Korea and then continued his education while in the U.S. Army, attending two and a half years of missile and radar electronics by day and college courses at night. TD deployed with the 1st Combat Hawk Missile Battalion during the Soviet Iron Curtain threat before attending the Artillery Officer Candidate School, where an injury ended his military career. uh, TD's career includes serving as a field engineer at the NASA High Range in Nevada for the X-15, XB-70, lifting bodies and lunar landing vehicles, working on the Navura projects at Jackass Flats, Nevada, and serving in special projects at Area 51. TD later formed a family oil and gas exploration company, drilling and producing oil and gas and mining uranium and gold. TD currently serves as the CEO of StarTel Inc., a landowner, and is actively mining uh, landscape rock and gold in Nevada. He serves as the president of Roadrunners International, an association of Area 51 veterans, and is the executive director of the Nevada Aerospace Hall of Fame. For more information, his website is www.area51specialprojects.com. TD, welcome to the X-Zone.
1: My, my pleasure, Rob.
0: TD, um, you having been one of, the, uh, one of the people who've had access to Area 51, can you tell our listeners what Area 51 is and um, what actually goes on there, if you can
1: uh, I can uh, it, it, it's a uh, pretty common knowledge it's a, uh, a very high-tech laboratory for uh, uh, evaluating new technology in, in aviation um, uh, of, of all sorts not, you know not just the uh, planes themselves but some of the um, accessories that goes with the planes and stuff that they want to um, uh, it's just laboratory if you want to test them see if you what whatever you've got will work against the enemy, you don't have to fly over enemy countries to do it, you fly over Area 51. Right.
0: Um, why do people associate Area 51 with extraterrestrials, government secrecy, cover-ups?
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's a, a good question. And, uh, and what the answer is, is um, no one knew about Area 51 until the Air Force took over in 1979. The CIA had run it since 1955 up to mm-hmm. that point. And when the Air Force took over, that's when word got out that there, there was an Area 51. And people wondered, what in the world has the CIA been doing for the last 20 years that we didn't know about? And somehow it, it got a, a, the imagination run a bit all yeah. Probably didn't know. No, no one had a clue. and. Uh, the actually uh, the ET thing just uh, took hold, and everybody loved to associate that with it, with the Area Fifty One.
0: Well, can I ask you this? And if you can't answer, I fully understand and respect any opinions that you cannot divulge due to due to secrecy. But during your tenure at Area Fifty One, did you ever see a UFO or an extraterrestrial body?
1: Uh, no, nothing like that. Uh, we saw we had strange looking things out there that people would would. Uh, that didn't know would that I the UFO, but um, we call them uh, 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 technology demonstrators, or uh, you know, they were prototypes of stuff that they we were going to build in the future. And we flew some really, really weird things. A lot of that's yeah. been declassified. People have seen it. The um, the the Polcat the. Um, um, uh, blue that we called the whale and was it what? The, uh, bird of prey? Some of those
0: wasn't the SR-71 also developed in uh in at Area 51?
1: Not the SR-71. That's a uh, a lot of people think that because they uh, everybody knows about the SR-71, yeah. what they don't realize is that was the fourth member of a Blackbird family. Wow! The latest one the uh, CIA built the first one, which was the A-12, mm-hmm. and. Um, it it flew, you know. They, they claim the SR-71 claims that it flew faster and higher than any other plane built, but that's not true. The A 12 flew uh, almost 5,000 feet higher than the SR-71 and much faster. Uh, but no one knew about it because it was top secret.
0: Why was Area 51 chosen?
1: It, uh, that that uh, again is a very good question. They uh, they needed a very remote place to test the U-2 plane. When we developed the, uh, the CIA, developed the U-2 plane, that was more highly classified program than even was the atomic bomb uh, Manhattan Project. And they picked Nevada because at the time, during the World War II, they moved the West Coast line of defense from California to Nevada. And so the Navy was here, the Coast Guard was in Nevada, the Army, the Air Force, everyone had moved it to Nevada. Plus, we just had 237,000 people in the entire state so, with all these military installations scattered throughout the state, this was the ideal place to hide a um, program for the U 2 program. And, and quite frankly, it wasn't hidden. It, Air Pitch-1 was really never a secret. They advertised that they'd build it, but it just it had a cover story. No one knew the CIA was involved. A NASA project and, uh, and the Atomic Energy Commission.
0: So why the CIA and not the Air Force at Area 51?
1: Well, there's quite a battle on this. When they want to build the U-2, uh, mm-hmm. we came out of the Korean War, and which was a proxy war between the United States and Russia. And the uh, we were the Russians put up the uh, the Iron Curtain and was not letting anyone know what they're doing, and they put a, the Sputnik up, you know, they put the first satellite into the space, and they put the first man into space. We thought they were way ahead of us. And we were trying to find out what was going on behind the uh, Iron Curtain. Or the, the, um, and uh, we, we lost 10 planes and 75 crewmen before, that very few people know about shot down in Russia before we decided to build the U-2. They tried to get the Air Force to do it, and General May flat-refused to build a plane that didn't carry guns and shoot uh, drop bombs. And he certainly wasn't going to build a plane that just had one engine. So the Eisenhower just said, "Fine, we'll have the CIA do it because I don't want anyone in uniform flying spy missions anyway." So they gave the job to the CIA because they already had Air America and some of the, uh, some of those things going for it. So it was just a natural to um, to uh, get into that kind of uh, aviation business, and so they developed the U-2 plane for that purpose.
0: How long were you at Area 51, sir?
1: I wasn't at the, actually physically at the area for about six years, but I was oh. with the program uh, long before that. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize that much of what goes on here Fifty doesn't really go on there. It's, it's all over the world. And um, uh, I first got involved in 1960, and, but I didn't actually go to the area until 1968.
0: Well, sir, first of all, I'd like to thank you for your service to your country. God bless you for that.
1: Well, thank you, sir.
0: And would it be fair to say, based on the length of time that you've been there, the people that you still know or may know at Area 51, that there are, nor have there ever been any extraterrestrial UFOs or extraterrestrial craft or extraterrestrial beings or aliens or alien entities at Area 51, to the best of your knowledge?
1: No, there there hasn't been. And that would have been a very one of the worst places in the world to, to have something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Jordan Knapp, I'm sure you know, he's a great friend of mine. Yeah. He and I have talked about this many times, but every the Russians knew we had an Air 51, mm-hmm. and they bombarded us with satellites. I mean, they, they were just a real pain yeah. trying to figure out what all we were doing there. The American people didn't know about it, but the Russians did. Mm-hmm. And uh, Plus, Air 51 was a transit uh, facility. We had, the, the permanent people like myself that worked out there, and then you have what we call the customer, which could be the Navy, the Air Force, mm-hmm. or some university, you know, different different ones that was developing things. Right. So people were coming in and out all the time. So that would not been a good place. With all the surveillance that was on Area 51, that had been a poor place to, to choose a program of uh, uh, like you just described.
0: All right, please stand by, TD. You and I have to take our first break, Exonation. Nation. Thornton, T.D. Barnes is our very special guest to this hour. wwwarea 51 specialprojectscom or www.td-barnes.com. This is The X-Zone. My name is Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. T.D. Barnes and I will return on the other side of this break, talking more about Area 51 here in The X-Zone. Don't go away. Welcome back, everyone. T.D. Barnes is my special guest this hour, www.td-barnes.com and www.area51specialprojects.com. T.D., thank you very much uh, for joining us tonight, and once again, thank you for your service. Thank you, sir. What did the CIA actually develop in Area 51?
1: developed well, the first thing that developed was the u2 plane and the um, Air 51 was never supposed to be a permanent facility the CIA just uh, picked it for the u2 and and once they um, got through training the their flight crew for the for the u2 they moved out and just by coincidence that, that uh, Lockheed built the u2 they also got the contract to build the a12 by Blackbird. And they said, wait, we already know about Area 51. Let's re- reopen it and um, do the uh, A 12 uh, program there, which was the Oxcart program. Right. And, and toward the end of the Oxcart, the CIA already knew that they were getting out of the reconnaissance business, but they were in the, very deeply into stealth. You know, A 12 was actually our first attempt at a stealth plane. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, and we, we see it in, in about 90% stealth. But the CIA was really, really involved in stealth. And then at the same time, we've alluded the many pilots and crews in uh, Vietnam uh, that we got our hands on the first Mid 21 and brought it out to Area 51 along with a lot of Soviet radar and what have you. And we developed, you know, we learned so much from exploiting the enemy's aircraft that that, that became a trade. At the uh, Area 51, they continue probably
0: even today. While you were at Area 51, sir, were you a member of the US military or were you a member of the CIA?
1: I was actually a contractor for the CIA. I I wasn't military, no. But uh, most uh, most of my work with the uh, CIA was as as a contractor. And um, even while I was on the NASA high range, the NASA site at Beatty, Nevada, where I was at, mm-hmm. was a member of what we call the Seven Sisters. And anytime they were having a flight out at the Area 51 of the A 12, uh, which you listeners may may not be familiar, it flew uh, uh, Mark 3 and about 90,000 feet, it's faster than a bullet. Anytime they were going to have a flight, they would notify my radar site and the other six sisters were the air defense command radar sites, and they had notified the different sites and say we're gonna have something flying today, uh, track it, but don't don't record it, don't mention it, don't say a word. And along the same note, you had the FAA was had people stationed there that they would get a hold of uh, all the flight uh, centers, uh, Los Angeles and different places, and say there's gonna be something flying today, real high and fast. Do not report it. Mm-hmm. And then they had the Air Defense Command do the same thing with all your military radar stations that, that was in the region. They said, there's going to be something flying today. Don't mention it. Don't record it. Don't say a word. Wow.
0: Now, you said you were a contractor for the CIA. What, what is a contractor compared to, is that somebody who is hired from the outside to work with the CIA on certain projects?
1: Yeah. A lot of people don't know that about 60% of the CIA is actually military people under contract. They're not, they don't, they, mm-hmm. uh, say, for example, our, our our pilots, they were all Air Force uh, fighter pilots. Right. And yeah. what, what we call it, we it, we call it sheep dipping. You, you resign from the military and you, go, and you sign a contract with the CIA. And then, uh, so you're actually working for the CIA and, and, and um, like with our pilots, when the project was over with, they tore up their resignations as though they had never happened, promoted them, and they finished their military career as though they never left the military. Wow. But if they, we, like I said, we call it sheep dipping, but, but about 60% of the CIA is military.
0: You know, it upsets me when I hear all the different stories about people who who go to Area 51 and they blatantly break the law trying to find out what is going on in this restricted area. And I've always said to my listeners throughout the years, "Has, hey, if it says hands-off, it means hands-off. Stay away means stay away. No trespassing means no trespassing because what goes on there is in the defense of our country. And I don't understand why people need to try and push the envelope and have everything exposed. And if it's exposed to, to the public, then the enemies of the United States who can use this information against us. How do you feel about that, sir?
1: I, I feel, feel that way very much. What some people, A lot of people don't realize that what's the secret about Area 51 is it's not something that the military or the CIA or someone is doing, it is like, uh, or right now in the news they've been talking about the um, replacement for the SR-71, you know, they talk about the SR-72. Well, you got Boeing and Lockheed both. Uh, uh, in competition with each other to develop a plane to sell to their government uh, that will do this job. So they uh, and what they do, they test them. Like uh, Boeing tests theirs up in in um, Washington, uh, Lockheed will do theirs probably in in, in California. Mm-hmm. But they bring them out to Area 51 to show the government what have we got. You know, we say, all right, what what have you got? Show right. us. Right. Well, will it work? So, big, don't want, want, go ahead.
0: No, sir, I'm sorry. All I was going to say is that it sounds like Area 51 was actually a, a, a place where people or different manufacturers could bring their products that were, yeah, for example, aircraft or other equipment that the government might want to buy. It was like a showcase room.
1: It, it is, and you would not want Boeing being able to spy on Lockheed and vice versa. So yeah. the secrecy is to protect the customer. These guys are customers, and that—that's the CIA actually turned it into a business. As they supplied the people that's got the know-how and the equipment, and these different uh, companies could come in that want to sell something to the Navy or the Air yeah. Force or whatever, and that's where they should demonstrate that it would do meet the specs that the uh, that the buyer wanted.
0: I do not believe that. of the American public and other people around the world realize the importance that the CIA plays. When you think of CIA, you think about um, espionage, counterespionage. But the venue of the CIA goes much further than that. And do you think that if the people actually knew the, 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 the width of the... CIA and how it plays in national security, that they would have a different outlook on the CIA?
1: They would, and I can give you a good example, Rob. When Please. It, when they started developing the A-12, mm-hmm. we knew that the Russians had built a new radar. We were picking up reflections of, of that new radar coming off their ICBMs being tested inside of Russia, mm-hmm. and they moved the radar to Cuba this, but before the missile crisis. Well, we got wind of was the CIA did. So, it was flying flights out of uh, uh, Fort, Fort Bliss, that are actually the biggest airport station next door. A ghost plane would fly at Russia to determine whether or not this radar was going to be able to detect and track the A 12 spy plane that we were building at Area 51 and be able to shoot it down. So, we would take a, a run at Cuba with this, uh, we called it a ghost plane, it was mm-hmm. c 97. Antennas all over everything, and make them turn on their radar on their defenses. Make them think that you know we we were the enemy. Right. So we could see what they had, and what we determined from that is yes, they will be able to shoot down anything we build. And we never flew another mission over Russia after Gary Powers got shot down. Absolutely re- none.
0: Yeah, I remember that uh, that incident with uh, Gary Powers being shot down and uh, the history behind it.
1: Yeah, what we did in this case, we mm-hmm. we built a big old dish and put it off right out of Morgantown, New Jersey, right off the turnpike. Right. We aimed it at the moon, and in a little little more than thirty days, we pinpointed every radar site in Russia by the reflections off the moon. Wow. Now there's that's a, what the CIA been doing.
0: What was it like living on Area Fifty One?
1: It it was well. To me, it was boring because I came off the NASA high range, right? And and there we were flying the Air 15 we Said we were flying everything, and every day was almost was a mission day. And they were, you know, test pilots, and we were making we made eight astronauts in the Air 15 over Nevada. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize this. And go to Area 51 where we were, um, but then we didn't have all the projects we got going now. And uh, there would be times when, particularly with stealth for example, they bring her was building the stealth prototypes and bring them out there to test them. And we put them on the pole and test them and then give them the results, you know, the, the, the out the stuff of yeah. what we saw. And we may not see them again for three months. Wow. So, so we're sitting out there. Uh, we go out on Monday morning, come home Friday night. with not had a lot to do. And so to me, coming off the air 15th site, you go out there where you on your thumb all day long, it was boring. <laughs>
0: You know, there's, I think they're one of the greatest movies that, that complements the great work that was done by the CIA and people like yourself, sir, was The Right Stuff, where at the very beginning they, they show actual footage of the different subsonic and then supersonic uh, craft breaking the sound barrier and the problems that they had facing them and, and the brave men and women that made it all possible.
1: This was such an exciting time back then. you got to remember, we didn't have computers yet. We still used slide rules. Yeah. And we were developing the first Mach 3 planes. We had the XB-70 bomber. We had the A-12, the the YF-12, which was a, a Mach 3 interceptor mm-hmm. that we were uh, testing for the Air Force. We had the uh, D-21 mothership that we w- was launching drones off of to fly over China to detect their uh, nuclear activity.
0: Stand by, mm-hmm. TD. We've got to take a break for the news okay. at the bottom of the hour. Exxon Nation, our guest the, th- tonight is uh, TD Barnes. His website is td-barnes.com and area51specialprojects.com. TD and I will be back on the other side of this break discussing Area 51 and much more. This edition of the Exxon. Don't go away. T.D. Barnes is our special guest this hour, Exxon Nation, area 51 specialprojectscom I was wondering, T.D., if you could discuss with us secrecy uh, how it worked. You know, we've, got, we've heard about the compartmentalization that uh, goes on in Area 51, need to know, etc. So can you, can you just give us a broad range of what is, you know, goes along with each title?
1: Yeah, sure. You know, uh, I, I used my team for example. We there were twenty-three of us in special projects, and each of us was a specialist in our own field. And we worked together. Uh, we uh, very close knit group. We uh, when they re- recruited us, we all either had a, a boat on Lake Mead or a cabin on Mount Charleston outside of Las Vegas. And this gave us something to talk about all week long while we're staying out out of the area. And uh, but we. We would, uh, as we grew out there, we had different customers. We were doing different things. Um, You know, I was in in radar, and that sort of thing was my background. But some of the others had other uh, 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 fields that they were in. And so they may have be dealing with a different customer than I would. So I wouldn't walk into their room. I knew basically what they're doing. They knew exactly or basically what I did. But you didn't ask. You just say, hey, you know who are you doing this for, or, or how does it work, or any of that sort of thing. Uh, it was compartmentalized, and this was good, and it was bad. We was able to keep it secret, but when we get together, even today, 50, 60 years later, there's still areas that we don't talk about, because we still don't know whether it's been declassified or not. But the, uh, when the CIA started declassifying Area 51, what they did out there, they realized that they didn't, they didn't know what we did. And the chief historian called me about 15 years ago and said we need to help reestablish the history of what what was competent at Area 51. And we started working, um, bringing in the engineers and different ones. But even the pilots, um, when we were flying over Vietnam and, and North Korea, the pilot come in from a flight, and you know he'd have we'd have two on station at a time. with rotating them back and forth from Area 51, and he would say, "How'd your flight go today?" But what did you see? You just did not ask. And you didn't expect to ask anyone, and you didn't expect to, uh, them to ask you. you know, that's just the way it was.
0: How did your families um, cope with the the secrecy, and I'm sure the long times away from home, that you and the other members uh, who worked at Area 51 uh, had to, you know, you had to just, you know, just you left the base, bang, <laughs> it was private.
1: The families were, uh, first of all, they were pretty well used to us uh, working on classified projects before mm-hmm. they went there. You know, Fifty-one was in the military, right? But the the agency, when it screened its people to go to Area Fifty-One, it looked at the families almost as much as it did the individual. Uh, your wife, if she drank too much, or uh, you know, uh, they're afraid of the Russians being able to to blackmail us. Their right. family, so they screened the family so closely that they just that, that was never an issue. The family didn't want to know where we were. My wife found out where I worked and what I did in two thousand and nine. They flew us back to Langley when we dedicated the plane on campus, and that's when the director authorized us to tell her wives where we were. She had no idea where I left, where I went to on Monday morning when I got on the plane and left. I'd have a windbreaker on my arm, briefcase, and. Uh, and it'd be 104 degrees here in Los Angeles. It's wow. cooler there in 51. But she thought I was uh, out of the country.
0: What did she say, or what was her reaction when she found out? You know, the, what you... <laughs> yeah, that's good.
1: Yeah, that's good <laughs> But she found out I was on 85 miles away from home all that time. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> she was almost mad at us. <laughs> you were that close to home, and I you couldn't come home at night. But uh, back then, we didn't have the Janet Airlines or any of that kind of stuff. We... We always laughed and you mm-hmm. said we flew up, up there with bombs and chickens, whatever happened to be going to Area 51. That's what we flew up in, but it wasn't quite, quite true. The um, you know our group, uh, the special project, we did not fly with the Air Force. Lockheed people did, you know. We it was compartmentalized. We didn't yeah. associate outside of our group, and but there was five of us that was kind of special, and we flew in a Queen Air. Uh, we had a little building out on the uh rear end of the runway on uh, at McCarran International. had a little building there right off the highway, and we'd go in through a little side gate, open up the gates and push the plane out of the building and will aboard it and and take off. Uh, and then the rest of our guys flew out of Nellis. but the even the guys working out there, you know, we didn't in the mess hall or any place. we didn't associate outside of our group. The, the Lockheed guy, they, well, even the, the, uh, the pilots, and none of them even come in my building, because we were working on other projects that they didn't have a need to know. But, lot- but you asked about the families. They, mm-hmm. the families knew it was uh, very sensitive. They knew it was uh, very security conscious. So we, at the time, they claimed the spy, uh, Russian spies, for every one of us. Wow. And they were very protective of our families. Uh, my wife got an obscene phone call one one morning. I could call, we could call home anytime we wanted to, but they couldn't call us. They didn't know where, where we were. They had emergency numbers, Nellis Airport, that they could call in an emergency. But we but we called home two or three times a day, but they had no idea where we were. at. and uh, anyway, my wife got a, a, a obscene phone call, and they called them by name, and uh, I notified security within minutes. They had uh, People guarded my family, and wow. they, they guarded for about three weeks until it was finally decided just a random call. But they were very, very serious about someone trying to get to us through our families.
0: People who purport and promote the fact that the sea, I, that Area 51 is a base where extraterrestrial wreckage and extraterrestrial uh, alien entities are, uh, UFOs are. Are, you know always point to the fact that the unmarked aircraft that leaves Nevada with people on board that flies to Area 51 is part of the proof that something nefarious is actually happening at Area 51. What is, what is the significance of the unmarked aircraft that goes to Area 51?
1: Yeah, the Janet flies. Uh, well, it's a good question. Um, as Ford did not have the markings on, I guess that's just part of the, the trying to uh, keep it secret. I, I, right. You know, that's your question. I don't, I don't, know why the. Uh, okay. Well, well, I don't know what they would put on them. So uh, they're not Air Force; mm-hmm. they're, they're contractor uh, planes. So, but they're not a um, a regular airline. Uh, I, that's a good question.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Uh, just un- unmarked planes i uh, I don't know whether they got any snifters or not that you know i don't know uh it's pretty common knowledge that they you know they do fly out there sure. and, and people' have known that for quite some time and uh, but uh, uh, uh I don't know if there's any sniiffers to, to the fact that they're unmarked what was I your? Just don't know what they put on them. yeah
0: i i guess i guess not yeah that would be a... <laughs> contrary to the fact that there's such high security, if they were actually to advertise this plane goes to Area 51, employees only, this way. Uh, was there ever an awe-inspiring moment that that you had while working at Area 51? Something that just blew you away?
1: Not not really. No way. The, the, you know, the, the mid-planes, uh, I I love the MiG program because, you know, I, when in Korea, we were trying our best to, to capture a Russian fighter, a Soviet MiG during the Korean War. We had all been, we wanted to catch them red-handed. And so, the, the particularly the little MiG-17 and MiG-15s, mm-hmm. you know, I just ripped, when we got those out of the area, I just loved the, the little planes. But the, uh, uh, we, I don't think there's anything new there. I, I kind of expected uh, what what we found with them and the um, but you know what the that came out of that you know we just totally turned around the kill ratio in Vietnam during the, with the Mig planes that that's the reason that, they, that the Navy came up with the top gun and the weapons school and the Air Force the um, uh, red flag exercises is we had a nine to one kill ratio against us in Vietnam we lost fifteen planes in one day didn't shoot down a single one wow and we got our, our hands on the Mig twenty one and we we reverse engineered it, we, we tore it down, see how they built it, the te- did a technical phase, and then we put it back together and started flying. And then the Navy came in first, for so they were losing those pilots. And on the first trial, we got a 100% kill against the Navy, us flying the MiG-21 against them. And the, the Navy, within two months, they, they realized that it was not the planes that were shooting them, down, uh, the reason for the losses, they simply didn't know how to fight. Hmm. They, and we realized that if a pilot could survive 10 missions in the in the war zone, he'd probably survive the war. And we're sitting over there green. They just didn't know how to fight. We decided to give them, the pilots those 10 missions against the MiG in, in Nevada instead of Vietnam. And it totally, absolutely, totally turned around the kill ratio. And you stop and think about it. Since Vietnam, I think we've lost one plane. In all the wars we've lost in Vietnam, we've lost one plane in air to air combat. Period.
0: Once again, TD, thank you for your service. And uh, you and I have to take our final break. Thank you for, uh, thank you for coming on. Great talking to you. And, explanation, uh, when we come back, our final segment with TD Barnes, www.area51specialprojects.com. This is The X-Zone. I am Rob McConnell coming to you from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And um, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on YouTube. You can find us on Speaker, iTunes, anywhere. Just look for X-Zone Radio TV. T.D. Barnes and I return as we wrap up this hour here in The X-Zone. It's a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. And you can find out all about the great programming we have available for you 24-7, 365 at www.xadbn.net
1: WilliamSPeckham.com.
0: Welcome back everyone. My guest this hour, TD Barnes, his website www.area51specialprojects.com and as I was saying to while we were on that commercial break, TD, I thank you and the other members of all the different teams that have worked at Area Fifty One and other places around this country of ours, in order to protect the freedom and the democracy that people like you have guaranteed us that we have today, so thank you for your service once again, sir. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, TD, uh, we also were talking about awe and things that just were awe to you know put you in awe, inspiring. And and you were telling me during the break about. Um, what was it again um a prototype that you saw
1: yeah we built they brought a prototype out this is in 1969 and this ended up uh, later became the f-117 but they brought a prototype out there the weirdest looking thing i ever saw in my life we put it on the pole mm-hmm. looked at it mm-hmm. looked, you know, did the little charts and graphs of the return to the signatures we got and they took it back and worked on it for about three months and brought it back out and looked at it and we got that thing down to the point where we had to put a thumbtack in it to get a ping on the radar to know what part of the, the prototype that we were looking at on the return. Kept going down, it got where the, the metal pole that we had it on was giving us too background, much background noise, so we built a styrofoam pole to put it on. And we got it, this thing down, they trimmed it down until it got where the, the rims on the uh, polished glasses would show up more than the plane did. And and the and, and his helmet. And that reminds uh, mind of that was 60 years ago. You just imagine what they you know they developed since then. But that was a process we went through over a se- several months of time. But you know, that just to work out the wrinkles, they bring it out and we look at it and they go back to the drawing board and change this, change that. And uh, that was a very exciting that uh, period of time. Well, what
0: was it like for you and the other members of your team the day That the first astronaut lifted up, and you knew in your heart that you and other members of the Area 51 team were part of that magnificent feat.
1: Oh my God, we're so proud of that because uh, I'm so fortunate to get to work with so many of the test pilots that later on became part of the space shuttle. And and, you know, uh, we worked with Neil Armstrong, he was on the X 15 program. And uh, in fact, we almost lost Neil, the first man on the moon. Uh, while he was testing the lunar landing vehicle down at Edwards. Uh, it, it blew up on him, and uh, he was able to jettison out of it. But we lost uh, 20% of our pilots on the um, uh, with the A-12 program, which was very, very sad that, that we had that kind of losses. And, uh, of course, the SR-71, the Air Force never experienced that because the time the SR-71 came along, we had already gotten all the uh, wrinkled out of it, the problems out of it, but mm-hmm. I've got the greatest admiration for test pilots. They get in, uh, jump in that thing, and say, "Let's see if this thing will fly," and they and got the marvel. These guys really had uh, a lot of nerve to do that.
0: Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Um, I, I remember watching various pieces of footage about the breaking of the sound barrier, and that was at Mach one. Then Mach 2, and you were talking about aircraft that could surpass Mach 3. What was that like, and what did the experience of breaking the sound barrier give to you, your crew, as well as the test pilots?
1: Yeah, but Sir Yeager broke the first, first uh, sound barrier. That was a major breakthrough. Yeah. So we didn't know what would happen when he broke through it. But you know, I talked about that we went through the era of going from into Mach 3 flight. Yep. A plane flies 2.5 2. Mach gets up to about 450 degree temperature, just air friction. At Mach 3, our planes got up as high as 2200 degrees Wow! around, around the uh, uh, air intake. And the windshield get up to like 800 degrees. Heat, the temperature was our biggest enemy. It wasn't the engines. Mm-hmm. We could, the J, uh, Pratt & Whitney engines, we had to go over 100,000 foot altitude. It was the actual the metal, we used titanium. But we had to invent everything about those planes. Everything. I mean the fuel, your fuel thing got up to 600 degrees maybe. Holy cow. Uh, and, and, and just think about it, we, we were taking at, at 2200 miles an hour, which is faster than a rifle bullet. Yeah. 90,000 feet. We had taken photographs that you read a car tag on. Get, we, you read the license plate number. That, uh, that, so, just imagine a camera building a, a cover for that camera that could withstand that kind of temperatures, first of all. It's well, just, uh, everything, uh, it's just marvelous what we, what we was able to come yeah. up with, invent, to, to develop that kind of technology. And and when people talk about these high speeds, mm-hmm. they're talking about something that's just, you can't imagine the temperature that, that's generated at high speed. And, and then people
0: wonder why all the secrecy at Area 51. Come on, people, listen to what this man is saying. Look, let's, let's, let's call it as it is. No UFOs, no extraterrestrials, no crashes, no reverse engineering of extraterrestrial vehicles. This is national security we're talking about.
1: Rob, the, with the A-12 flying at 2,200 miles an hour yeah. to make a U-turn took a minimum of 85 miles. Wow. A normal U turn was uh, 125 miles. It took that much space for him to make a U turn.
0: Unreal. Unreal. Listen, before we go, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the Nevada Aerospace Hall of Fame. Tell us about it. You're the executive director.
1: Yeah, we formed the, so, so many of our pilots that, that no one would ever know about. The guy that flew these uh, technology demonstrators at, out at the Area 51 and for the Navy at Fallon. The different ones. We we wanted to give them recognition. Wow. Uh, for example, our uh, our six uh, A twelve pilots that actually flew operational over um, um, Vietnam and North Korea. Mm-hmm. No one ever knew about them because they were top secret. Well, these guys earned the the CIA's highest award, the Intelligence Star for Valor. Yet, no, they could never tell their story. No one ever knew about them. Well, I knew them. You know, they're my friends. In fact, I'm having lunch with. Tomorrow with, with Frank Murray, one of the pilots, uh, we wanted to recognize those people and the people on the NASA high range The first, we you know, we made eight astronauts here in Nevada that mm-hmm. never got recognition. So I wanted to be able to recognize these people. So I uh, was one of the founders of the Nevada Aerospace Hall of Fame, and with their cold, and we we honored um, a large number of people, not just the people at uh, Area 51. But we designed it for the people that worked like places. Area 51. We might never be able to tell the public what they flew, but we could say they flew something that earns them a right to be in the Hall of Fame.
0: Is the Hall of Fame open to the public? Uh, Yes,
1: it is. Yeah, we have. We have uh, every year. We have a uh, a big banquet, and we have. uh, some of the people are still alive that we have there, and, and some are deceased, and we invite their, their family. families. It's quite an event that we have.
0: And how about the uh, the international uh, the Association of Area 51 Veterans?
1: That's the Roadrunners International, and sadly, uh, we had our last reunion last October. Oh. There's just not enough of us left that we that can travel. Uh, you know, the guys. Uh, I'm on the younger ones. Some of them are in their uh, late 80s and, and early 90s, and at the point that they had traveled. But that was an association that, that we put together actually in 1972, long, oh, long before the us. And we would meet. This was the CIA uh, people, the uh, Air Force people involved, the people were Air Fifty One, boots on the ground, uh, included your uh, your contractors, you like Kodak. Mm-hmm. Uh, Python, the camera people, the uh, Lockheed people, everybody that worked on the program. It was associations of all these people, the veterans that worked at Area 51. And I got to mention to you that the, you know, the widows of the people we lost, like Jack Weeks's widow that we lost in at the end of um, uh, Operation Black Shield, and uh, Walt Ray, their, their widows, their kids still come to our every reunion. Our fam- we grew a family that had never parted uh, at uh, 50 years, and, uh, and their kids, So associate- our kids, so, so they associated with each other. Uh, but it, it, it grew a family out of the secrecy and the bonding that developed out of Dairy 51, uh, that we still uh, stay in touch with the, the kids and the families, and, and even our last reunion, over 50% of the people. The, the the guy that was in the in the program was no longer with us, but the family still came.
0: Fascinating story. We've got about a minute left, uh, TD. What sure. are your What are your final thoughts for the exo nation around the world? What would you like to say to them right now?
1: Oh, I tell you, we got scary situations. Uh, this North Korea thing is just scary to death. Yeah. You know how how you deal with it? We we don't know, and um, you know a lot of the opinion that. Um, World War II and uh, I mean uh, the Korean War and the uh, Vietnam War could have been avoided. Uh, Agency people uh, really believe that, and uh, it was the political the politicians involved that got us into the wars. And we wonder now. We were talking about this at Langley. I was back at Langley uh, about a month ago, and me and some of the historians and different ones were sitting around just talking about the Korean North Korean thing. We don't have an answer. We don't. You you know, history will tell us whether we're right or wrong. That's right. What what do you do? You know, uh, we look look back at the Korean War and Vietnam War and say, yeah, they they could have been avoided. But at the time, we know that. You know, you you, you you, you don't know the answer.
0: Right. TD, thank you so much once again for coming on the show. I'd love to have you back on in the future so we can talk more about about the, these times, the Korean situation, and uh, much more. But until that time, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show, and thank you and all those members of the Roadrunners as well as the members of the Nevada Aerospace Hall of Fame for their service to this country and to the great work that they've done.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Have a good night, <laughs> sir. Exonation Nation, TD Barnes has been my guest, www.area51specialprojects.com. And www.td-barnes.com. He's available on LinkedIn, Facebook, and uh, uh, Twitter. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as we continue here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away.